Turn with me, please, to Matthew, the seventh chapter. We've come to the end now of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. The Lord is winding down His argument, and He intends to drive home His conclusion to us. One important thing about the sermon that I've tried to underscore time and time again is that there's one theme in the message. Uh, I hope you've learned to look for that in Scripture. Most of of Scripture is a reasoned argument. It's not simply, the Scriptures are not simply a homily of loosely related ideas. There is almost always an organizing core. There's some idea around which all the ideas are, um, are centered. I'm sure you women who have been studying the book of James now are beginning to see that James is not like the book of Proverbs. Rather, James has one idea that he's stating over and over again, and that's what Jesus is doing. Now, the organizing element, the major theme of the Sermon on the Mount, is the idea of righteousness, being right with God and man. And as we've seen before, that term was used in the in biblical times, not only in a religious sense, but also in a non-religious sense. The term actually means alignment with a standard of some sort. Now, let me give you an illustration. I, a couple of months ago, I bought one of these uh, watches, you know, these marvelous things that have buttons and dials and bells and lights, has a vacuum gauge and an altimeter and and uh, tachometer, a few other things. And it looks like the cockpit of a 747 every time I look at it. It's an amazing little piece of machinery. And uh, they told me when I bought this thing that it was accurate uh, within a second every year. In other words, it wouldn't uh, vary more than a second away from from the norm. So I, when I first got this watch, I started checking it out, and I'd get on the telephone and call the time. And they would say, 2.21, right on, 2.21. And I did that about a half a dozen times until I convinced myself that I had a righteous watch. Now, that's what the term righteousness means in the New Testament. It's alignment with a standard. And the standard, as we've seen, is the character of God as it's revealed in Scripture. That's our norm. That's normative for us. That's how we know what's right. We're not at sea. Uh, that's important because we live, we live in a, in a time uh, in history when, when men in general are discarding norms. Uh, perhaps just societal norms or adhering to, you know, whatever is is right. That sort of philosophy. But, it's rare to find someone who believes in absolutes, in normative truth, something that, a standard that's, that's a reliable and absolute. And uh, our confidence from, from our Lord's teaching is that the Word of God is our standard because it's the Word that reveals the character of God and that's the standard to which we should conform our lives. As we saw in chapter 5, Jesus begins at that point by telling us that for Him, Scripture was absolute. He says, not one stroke of the pen, not one letter, not one uh, small portion of a letter will be stricken from the law until all is fulfilled. He, um, he identifies the longevity of, of, the, of the law and his continuance, or the scriptures as we saw, with the continuance of heaven and earth. As long as the universe exists, Jesus says, we have a standard. Now, I used to have all of these uh, very weighty philosophical arguments for the authority of scripture and and they were impressive to me. But I, I, I've come to see that, that really Jesus' approach is much better. As long as, as the universe exists, I can know that God's Word 
uh, is, is still there. It's still the standard. If I ever doubt it, like Henny Penny, I can go outside and look at the sky. And if the sky hasn't fallen yet, then I know there's a standard. There's an absolute. Uh, God has revealed himself. I know what he's like. I'm not at a loss for truth. It's there in his word. Now, that's where Jesus begins. He says that he submitted himself to the Old Testament scriptures. That was the only Bible he had and that he enjoins on us as well. But what God is after is not merely strict legal obedience to the law. There is a deeper level of understanding of truth, which the Lord wants us to see, and it's this. The intent of the law is to make us more loving, more sensitive, more caring uh, people. Uh, the Pharisees were very righteous in terms of strict adherence to the standard, but they missed the whole point of the law. They just didn't love people. They lost their sensitivity to the needs around them. And so Jesus points out that it's not only important not to murder, but it's also important to do, we need to deal with the murderous intent in our hearts. It's manifested in various ways. Now that you have in chapter 5. Practice righteousness. Jesus says, a righteousness like God who loves friend and foe alike. He loves the world. He loves enemies. And we should love our enemies, Jesus says. Then in chapter 6 he tells us, that while we should practice righteousness, God does not want us to practice our righteousness before people. It's really a, a private matter. It's not for show. Uh, we have to be out in the world living righteous lives, but we don't do it for people. We do it for God. And uh, the Lord warns us against various religious practices which are simply for show, but they don't have any reality. He says, live your life out for the Lord. Don't worry about how people respond to you. Don't worry about what rewards you get. If people praise you and, and that warm feeling you get from being, well, that's your only reward. Don't live for that. Live for God. Let God reward you. Let God meet your needs. Let him provide for you. He provides for the birds and, and uh, he clothes the plants. So why should we worry? Live your life out for him. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and God will take care of everything else. So practice righteousness, chapter 5, but in chapter 6, don't practice it for the sake of men, out in front, just for show. Make it real. And then in chapter 7, he, he turns the corner a bit, and his emphasis here is still on righteousness, but he's telling us here that we should not impose our righteousness on others. Now let's read the first six verses of chapter 7. Do not judge, lest you be judged yourselves. For in the way you judge, you will be judged. And by your standard of measure, it shall be measured to you. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, and behold, the log is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly enough to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give what is holy to dogs, and do not throw your pearls before swine lest they trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. Now, my Bible, verse 6, is a separate paragraph, but I believe that it belongs with the first five verses. It's a part of Jesus' continuing uh, discussion of the topic of judging others. And in effect, Jesus says, don't. Don't criticize others. Don't judge them. Don't impose your standard of righteousness on others. The standard is meant for you. And if you're going to sit in judgment on anyone, sit in judgment on yourself. Bring your own life into alignment with God's standard. 
not your place in life to try to correct everyone and shape them up and get everybody ordered in their life. As C.S. Lewis puts it, there's really only one difficult person in the world for whom you are responsible, and that's you. Uh, we need to use the word to correct ourselves. Apply it first here, you see. That's Jesus' point. But oh, how we love to shape everyone else up. I do it all the time. I, I start studying a passage that I'm going to teach, and I think, oh, I'm going to lay this one on them, because this is what they need to hear. And I forget that really, it's for me first, and I need to respond to the truth first, before I try to apply it to, to anyone else. You see? Uh, some of you wives, I'm sure, when you married your, uh, before you were married to your husband, you thought, now he has a few rough edges, and, uh, and but in time I'll get him shaped up, I'll get him house trained, and, and uh, he'll do everything just right, and you discovered to your chagrin that he just didn't cooperate at all, he really didn't appreciate being told how to run his business and how to arrange his socks in the drawer and all those wonderful things that, that wives want to do for their husbands to, to, to help them. <laughs> Jesus says, no, no, that's really not where you begin. You start with yourself. You apply the truth to yourself. Then you can see clearly how to help someone else. That's the purpose of the word. It's to to affect change in the reader, see, the one who hears it. That's where we begin. Now, there are two problems, Jesus says, in in, uh, uh, this sort of critical attitude toward others, this condemning, censorious uh, manner that, that we have. The first is what I call the problem of of reciprocity. In other words, we get back what we give. That that seems to be a principle that obtains in all of life. You you just get what you give. And that's what Jesus means in verse 2 when he says, For in the way you judge, you'll be judged. And by your standard of measure, it shall be measured to you. Now, Jesus is not here talking about the time when we'll stand before the judgment seat of Christ. If you... Go to the parallel passage in Luke 6, you'll discover that Jesus there applies uh, this principle to others. The, the, the way you treat others is the way which they will treat you. And if we're intolerant and judgmental and uh, critical, people will be inclined to treat us the same way. But if we're tolerant and, and we're gracious and forgiving, then in general, people will treat us the same way. One of the, one of the great ironies of life is that uh, most people are critical because they themselves sense a lack of worth. They, they want to be accepted and approved. And so we will tend to criticize other people because it makes us feel better about ourselves. But it always backfires because people don't appreciate it. And we find that we're less accepted and less liked. And they tend to be more critical of us, so we start feeling worse about ourselves. So Jesus says, don't, don't, don't start by applying truth to everyone else's life because it backfires. You're the one who'll suffer the most, you see. And then secondly, the second problem that he points out is one of priority. The scriptures are to be applied, but God wants us to begin with ourselves. And he uses this very helpful uh, illustration here. It, it's a uh, it's a figure of speech, hyperbole, exaggeration for the use of emphasis. He says, how can you see the speck in your brother's eye when you have a log sticking out of yours? Can you imagine what that would look like, trying to help someone with a big two-by-four projecting from your right eye? 
and you're trying to help them and you're hitting them over the head with the two before while you're trying to get the speck. And you can see how ludicrous the whole thing is, but Jesus makes his point. People really don't respond too well to you when you're trying to get the speck out of their eye and you have a big stake in yours. See? So Jesus says, no, first take the stake out. Take the log out. Then you can see to help your, your brother or your sister. It's a question of priority. A number of years ago, when we were in the motherload country in California, uh, Brian was rolling down a slope, and there were a number of, of uh, oak leaves, dried oak leaves on the hill, and he, and he got one in his eye. And boy, was it painful. He was really in pain. And I tried to get the thing out, and I, I couldn't find it. And so finally we had to take him to a doctor. We'd never seen this doctor before in a strange town. And we walked into his office, you know, and he put that funny little hat on with the silver donut, and he started looking through the hole. And he gets out his napkin, and out comes the speck, just like that. It took about 30 seconds. And Brian just walked right in there and laid down on the table and opened his eye, and out it came. So he could see very clearly. But if I'd walked in there, and he had a stick projecting out of his eye, I don't think either Brian or I would have felt too confident. As he's trying to see the thing, you know. <clears throat> you see what Jesus is saying. Let's begin... Application begins at home. Let's let's apply the truth to ourselves. And then we can help others. Now, uh, verse 6 here is the balance to Jesus' teaching. He recognizes that we do have to make judgments. We are to be critical and analytical in our thinking. But uh, And be thoughtful. You see, he's not saying be, na- be naive. Don't judge accurately. It was Jesus himself who said that we need to be as wise as serpents. We need to think and be analytical about things. So he's not uh, encouraging us to be unthinking and, and naive when he says don't judge. We have to make judgments. And there are some people who are beyond help, at least at this point in their life. We may want to get the speck out of their eye, but they don't want the speck taken out. They don't want to be helped. They don't want truth. They want to live under cover of darkness. They don't want the light to shine into their lives. So the Lord says, don't take the precious things of God like pearls and strew them before uh, an animal that will trample them underfoot and not appreciate them. And I think what's behind the Lord's words here is that truth unheeded does tend to brutalize people. The reason the Lord withdraws light from those who don't want it is that unheeded truth tends to make us less humane, more animalistic, more brutal. And as an act of love, we shouldn't continue to force people to face into the truth when they don't want it. So Jesus is telling us that if in our attempts to take the speck out of someone's eye, they, they indicate uh, uh, distaste for spiritual things, disregard for holy things, God says don't force them on them. Back off. Wait for the proper time. He's not talking here about non-Christians in general. He's talking about those who spurn the truth, who have no use for it, who ridicule it. You see? Don't force truth on those people. Now, I want to say something by way of application, which is my own personal opinion. Okay? Don't take this as biblical or scriptural or authoritative. It's just my opinion. I have a great deal of uneasiness about bumper stickers for this reason. Christian bumper stickers. Because I think many non-Christians misunderstand. 
And there are many people out there who, at least in this point of their life, are very cynical and they have rejected truth and they don't want anything to do with it and they have an intense dislike of slogans and Christian ideas displayed on on bumpers. Now, don't go run out and jerk your bumper sticker off because I, I just ask you to think through this issue. For instance, there is one that I've seen frequently in Boise that says, God said it, I believe it, and that settles it. Now, I believe that. That's my approach to Scripture. Whatever God has said, I believe. And though I may struggle with it, and I may not always obey with it, obey it, I still can't quibble with it. That's God's Word. He said it, I believe it. All right? But I think most most non-Christians misunderstand. They think that what we're saying is that we're naive and unthinking, and we're not open to truth, you see? I'm just asking you to think analytically about the ways in which we present truth to the world. In my book, the best way to do it is through a life that's aligned with the standard of Jesus Christ's life and through a witness through our own lips. And uh, that seems to be the most effective way. That's what people respond to. And we need to heed the Lord's words here about taking the precious things of God and just strewing them around where people are going to be disdainful and turned off and, and they'll despise them, you see. All right, now enough said on that subject. Let's go on to verses 7 through 11. Ask, and it shall be given to you. Seek, and you shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks find, and to him who knocks it shall be opened. Or what man is there among you when his son shall ask him for a loaf will give him a stone? Or if he shall ask for a fish, he will not give him a snake, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more shall your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask him? Therefore, in other words, because God is good and gives, therefore, whatever you want others to do for you, do so for them, for this is the law and the prophets. And you ask, why does the Lord introduce this teaching on prayer at this point? What relationship does this have to what goes before? Well, it's the key to everything. Prayer is simply the highest expression of our dependence upon God. He's been talking about a righteousness that surpasses that of the Pharisees. A deep down righteousness that exhibits itself in God-like behavior wherever we go. And who can do that? I can't. You can't. Therefore, we need to ask God to give us what we need. He's talking here about asking for character, asking for personality needs, for love, for joy, for peace, for patience, for self-control, those attributes of Christ's life that we need to display in the world. And the Lord says, when you need them, just ask for them. On another occasion, someone asked Jesus, what shall we do to work the works of God? Now, that's a good question. That's a question we often ask. What, what can I do to align myself with what God is doing in the world? How can I be God-like in the world? Well, if you think about it for a moment, that's a very audacious thing to, to even think. How can I be God-like? Well, Jesus' response is, this is the work of God that you believe on Him whom He has sent. You see? This is how we do God's work in the world. Only God can do His work in the world, and therefore we have to depend upon Him. That's the only way. So when you have a need, ask it. When you seek for satisfaction or something to fill you, ask it. See? Because he's a father who gives. 
Now, in, in, in referring to us as fathers, he touches a sensitive point because we all know as fathers that we want to give our sons whatever they need. And if your son asks for, for breakfast some morning, you don't go out in the backyard and get a rock and put it on his plate and say, okay, kid, eat it. Or take him out to uh, bread loaf rock or whatever it's called out on the way to Horseshoe Bend and give him a jar of peanut butter and say, have at it, kid. <clears throat> you don't do that sort of thing. If he's hungry, you feed him food. If he asks for a fish, you don't put a snake on his plate. It would be a terrible thing to do. Fathers aren't like that. Shouldn't be like that. <laughs> but the people of Jesus' day really believed that's the way the gods were. The pagans uh, believed that the gods were mean and nasty and tricky and unreliable. And whenever they gave anything, they always had a barb in the gift. There were always strings attached. You never could trust them. One of the quite well-known stories from Greek mythology concerns a, a young uh, uh, goddess, Aurora, who fell in love with a mortal. And so she, she uh, asked Zeus to give him immortality because she wanted to live with him forever. Tothinus was his name. So uh, <laughs> Zeus uh, plays a trick on her. He gives the young man immortality, but he doesn't give him perpetual youth, and so he just gets older and older and older and he can't die. You see? And that's the way they thought of the gods. That's the way the gods were. Cruel, capricious, tricky, mean. But God says that's not the way God the Father is. He's like a father with his son. He just wants to give. What do you need? Do you need love to live with that person you're with? You got it. Just ask for it. You need patience to undergo that situation that you're in at the office? Just ask him. Call him Father and ask him for it and receive it. You need patience? Do you need love? Do you need uh, strength, moral courage? Whatever you need, just ask and receive, Jesus said. He's the Father who wants to give. Now, the proviso here is that you must keep on asking. The uh, verb tense that he uses in verse 7 is a present tense. It has the idea of continuing to ask. Keep on asking. Keep on knocking. Keep on seeking. One of the problems with translating Greek into English is that the Greeks had an awful lot of verb tenses that we just don't have in English, and it's hard to convey all these ideas. But maybe an illustration would help. Uh, we're, we're trying to cut down our heating bill at home. Most of you are, I'm sure. So I've been laying down the law about uh, doors, you know, keeping doors shut, shutting off parts of the house and so forth. And suppose one of my kids comes running through the front door and he leaves the door open. Well, if I were a Greek, I would say, shut the door. And I would use an aorist imperative, an aorist uh, tense command. That would mean go back and shut the door. So hopefully he would go back and shut the door. If, however, I called a family council that night and I said, look, keep the doors closed, I would use a present tense imperative, the same imperative that Jesus uses here, the point of which is keep them closed as a pattern of life, as a lifestyle. It's shut doors around here, okay? Now, that's what Jesus is saying. Our pattern of life ought to be to keep on asking. When we get up in the morning, our first utterance of the day, our first thought ought to be, Lord Jesus, thank you that you're here and available to me. I take everything that you give me. I, do, I receive every attribute that's at your disposal. Thank you. If we're moody and grumpy in the morning, just thank you. That he's our joy and peace. If you're worried about something through the day, just thank him that he's available. Enabled to meet that need. 
And then through the day, as pressures arise, just keep on asking. Keep on receiving. You see, That's what Jesus is saying. He's a father who wants to give. He'll give what is good. And by the way, again, in the parallel passage in Luke, the good thing here is the Holy Spirit. Luke's quotation of this statement runs something like this. If you, being evil, give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? The Spirit who is holy. He'll give you a spirit of holiness, you see. He'll give you what you need, the resources to be good, to be righteous, to meet the demands of that moment. And therefore, since he gives what is good, whatever you want others to do to you, do so to them. That's another statement of the, of the, uh, the law of love. Love your neighbor as yourself. Whatever is demanded, do it. You can love them as yourself. You can do for others what you would have them do to you because you have the resources that make it possible. And then in verses 13 and 14, he, he, he drives home the message. This is his invitation. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide. Don't stand around and applaud the sermon. See, People could have walked off from the Sermon on the Mount and said, Oh, best sermon I ever heard. The Lord certainly teaches well. Absolutely marvelous. Three cheers for the Lord's pedagogy. And walk away from that and never change. The Lord says, no, enter in. Start acting on this basis. Don't wait till tomorrow. Don't wait till you have yourself better together. Just start now. Enter into this truth. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And many are those who enter by it, for the gate is small. And the way is narrow that leads to a life, it leads to life. And few are those who find it. Suppose you were in Lake Placid today for this, uh, the hockey game that's going on right now. By the way, the USA is ahead two to one in case you're trying to keep track. And, uh, what? Oh, excuse me, Fennin's ahead. I'm sorry. That's right. Alright, anyway, you forget that. We'll, you're, you're trying to get into the ice rink, alright? The ice arena. And, uh, you're formed outside and here's this huge crowd of people trying to press through the gates and they're elbowing each other and you're right in the middle of it. And they're sort of inching their way along to get into the arena. And, uh, as you're standing there, someone moves in alongside and they say, uh, excuse me, I'm from the Lake Placid Olympic Committee and you're in the wrong line. Uh, these people don't realize it, but this line goes through a passageway and down through a hall, and they're going to end up out in the parking lot. They're not going to make it into the ice arena. The way to get into the ice arena is through that little door right there, and, you, and there's a little crack like this in the wall, a little tiny door, doesn't look like much, it's not marked. And every once in a while, one or two people will wander away from the mass, and they'll go through the little door. But everybody else is crowding and pushing and trying to get into the broad, to the wide door. And you could see how you would feel. Now, can I trust this? You know, can everybody in the world be wrong? Can I really believe that that's the way into the arena? And that's the sort of tension, I think, that's set up in our mind when the Lord says, enter into the narrow gate because the whole world's going the other direction. Their philosophy of life is you can do it all by yourself. You don't need anybody. And it's crazy to give up your rights or to serve anyone. You should live for yourself. After all, you only go around once, so you've got to go for all the gusto you can get. Go for it. It doesn't matter who you step on to get there. And you just, you know, you've got everything it takes to live life 
the way a man ought to live. And that's the way the world is going. And Jesus says, no, that's absolutely wrong. You don't have what it takes because the righteousness that is expected of you is a supernatural righteousness. The only way, way to be a man or a woman is to count on me. It all depends on me. And I see a few people wandering through that door, but the great bulk of human society is going the other way. And so Jesus says, you have to decide. Are you going to go with the crowd? Or are you going to go through the narrow gate and through the narrow way? And the, and the problem that complicates our decision is that most of the opinion formers, the leading thinkers of the world, are telling us the broad gate is the way to go. And that's why Jesus says what he does in verses 15 and following. Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. They look good on the outside. What they promise is life, but they're wolves in sheep's clothing. You'll know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles are they. Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but the rotten tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a rotten tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then you will know them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Now, Jesus has here in mind primarily the religious leaders of his day who were false prophets. They were religious prophets. But I think by extension, we can also uh, make application to the prophets of our day. The philosophers, the theologians, the psychiatrists, the marriage counselors, the economists, the politicians, the anthropologists, the social scientists, the people who form public opinion and who tell us what's right and who set the standards for us. And they say, this is the way you live and you'll live. But Jesus says, beware, because they're headed in the wrong direction. And what they're saying does not, will not lead you to life. It leads to destruction. And you'll know them, he says, by their fruits. You'll know by what they say. Their message will be, depend upon yourself. It all depends upon you. And those are the ones, he says, who practice lawlessness because it just doesn't work. That philosophy of life doesn't produce righteousness. But there will be those who, as he puts it, do the will of my Father in heaven, who teach you to be righteous along the, the lines of Jesus' righteousness and teach you to count upon him, those you're to listen to. But beware, he says, of the false prophets. And then in, in the closing verses of this sermon, he uses the illustration with which we're all familiar, that of two houses. There are two ways in verses 13 and 14, two prophets in 15 through 23, and two houses in 24 to the end of the chapter. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts upon them, that is, those who, who listen to what I say, who give heed to it, who align themselves with my standard of righteousness and my way of being righteous may be compared to a wise man who built his house upon the rock and the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and burst against that house, yet it did not fall 
for it had been founded upon the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act upon them will be like a foolish man who built his house upon the sand. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and burst against that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. And you say, oh, I know that story. That's the story of the three little pigs. First little pig built his house of straw, and the wolf blew it down. And the second little pig built his house of sticks, and the wolf blew that down. But the third little, house, third little pig built his house of bricks, and the wolf couldn't blow that down. But that is not the story of the three little pigs. Because the point of the three little pigs was structure your house appropriately. Build a strong house. Jesus' point is here, build your house on the right foundation. The house is the same in both cases. The house represents your humanity. Your weak, frail humanity. Mine. And what will enable us to stand is not our strength and the brick structure that we put up, but the foundation on which we build our life. And you see, that's what Jesus has been saying all the way through. Count on me. Depend on me. Rely on me. Abide in me. That's the source of your life. And so we need to enter in. The two alternatives in life. We can either go it alone and try to produce life on our own, out of our own resources, or we can count on Him and His righteousness. I was struck this yesterday as I walked into the auditorium by the arrangement of the two posters here. Um, this one states, Take up your cross and follow me. In other words, set yourself aside. Put yourself to death. He's not talking about the burdens that we have to bear. Those are not the crosses. The cross was the place of, of crucifixion, the place of death. And when Jesus said, take up your cross and follow me, he meant put yourself to death. Stop thinking about yourself. Stop depending upon yourself. Start serving others. Ministering to their needs. But who can do that? I can't. I don't even like people, much less want to serve them. But Jesus says, not that we are adequate in ourselves, but our adequacy is from God. It's Paul's statement with Jesus' authority. Our adequacy to do this comes from Him. And that's what Jesus is saying. And that's what it means to build your life on a foundation that lasts. I'd like to ask you to stand. And I want Dave to come, if he will, and sing again the song that he sang for us, the song which he uh, uh, has, has written from Matthew 7. And uh, as he sings, will you follow along in, in prayer with him? And then we'll be dismissed.
what I offer to you. How can you live afraid to believe that I know how to give if you'd only receive? It's just not within you to know how to live. And unless you receive, you'll have nothing to give. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you door will be open to you. Come to me and see what I offer to do. Come to me and see what I offer to you.